This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. And today on the Coach Developer Conversations podcast, we welcome Rachel Lofthouse. Hello. Um, Rachel, as we've done with everybody on the podcast, do you mind just giving us a little background about who you are and what you do? Yes, that's absolutely fine. My name is uh, Rachel Lofthouse. I am Professor of Teacher Education at Leeds Beckett University in the Carnegie School of Education and I am the Founder and Director of Collective Ed. Collective Ed is the Research and Practice Centre which focuses on coaching and mentoring and professional learning in an education setting. Brilliant, thank you Rachel. Um, What I'm interested with today is just exploring the connections between supporting teachers um, and helping teachers to develop and and how that might cross over into coaching world. Um, So I suppose the first question to ask would be, uh, which might be the million dollar question, what what works well um, for you in terms of your experience? What are the things in terms of supporting um, supporting teachers that are really effective? It is a very complex question. And it has so many caveats and so many, well, it depends on um, within the responses to that question. However, there's probably a few key areas. And one is to do with respecting everybody's everybody's professional intent. So quite often in teacher education, there is a a very distinct gradient of learning. Um, and clearly people come in and they would might be regarded as real novices as teachers. However, they're not novices in terms of their experience of schools. Most of them have got many, many years under their belt of being in schools. So although they may be novices as teachers, they are very familiar with and, and feel often quite confident about the school setting and about what a teacher does. And they've imagined themselves being a teacher for some time because they've sat and observed and been taught by teachers uh, for, for a long time. And one of the things to recognise is that um, when we're supporting each individual teacher, regardless of their career stage, it is, the, it is important to respect that, that background um, and the motivation that brings them into the space, into the job, as well as it is to respect the stage of development they're at and to deal with that. So it is a, a process which is professional, but it's also very personal. Um, There aren't any easy answers, but I guess one of the things to consider is to be really confident about what the the task at that time needs to try and achieve. So there's no point expecting a very uh, new student teacher, for example, to be competent in all areas of classroom practice. Um, And often, areas of classroom practice that they're not confident in will undermine the areas of classroom practice that they are confident with helping to strike a balance uh, with them through conversation about what's working and what's, um, what's, what they're struggling with, w- exposing those things but without denting their confidence because they need the confidence to keep going. Yeah, the, the bit that you mentioned there, through conversation, mm-hmm. I think is an is a interesting point just to pick up on on previous podcasts we've spoken about the the quality of conversation, listening with intent and really starting to unpick the, the who that you're working with. Um, how, how would you say that framing of, is it tends to be a, uh, a strengths-based process, so we'll work on the things that you are good at whilst reminding yourself of things that need challenge 
What's the balance there? Um, well, if you went and interviewed even just 10 early career teachers or student teachers, you would get very different responses as to what they felt was most helpful to them. However, I think good practice would almost always... Um, essentially, it would locate the conversation in an inquiry. So it's a conversation which is dialogic, where the two uh, participants are curious about each other's um, stance and each other's potential contribution to the conversation, where there's, a, there's perhaps a question underpinning it, even if that isn't articulated as a question, but what the question might be driving at is um, a focus for attention. So that sense that at this point in time there is a value in paying attention to this thing that you're trying to do in the classroom and actually the luxury is that I am here to help you pay attention to it. So I may have observed you teaching, I may have looked at your lesson plans, I may be uh, looking at some of the pupils work that emerges from that lesson um, and actually the fact that you've now got me paying attention to it with you is a luxury that you wouldn't always have on every occasion and let's use that to have a, a formative conversation about how and when and where and why and what and, 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 and the so what bit in relation to your emerging practice. Which is a very waffly answer, I think. No, but it's this kind of sense of trying to pay attention and, and also giving somebody a sense that having somebody there by your side is of value rather than of you know, it, it is is just another burden to add to the workday. Or it's not an assessment. I mean, that's yeah. certainly one of the challenges that we find with coaches at times. A coach developer is there as a as a supportive other, not someone with a checklist who's just seeking to judge and tell you what's not good. Mm -hmm. It's that inquiry, I think, the, yeah. the word that you use there, and the curiosity mm -hmm. and a, a mutual curiosity. Yeah, and one of the things that definitely in education in England and elsewhere but very definitely in England which is a tradition and it's kind of also built into a whole kind of set of protocols and standards about the way we work is that if you are working with student teachers or newly qualified teachers and you are mentoring them then part of your role is to make a fair assessment of their practice in relation to a set of standards and it's quite difficult sometimes for a mentor to be both an assessor and to be feeding that information that's gathered about you, you as a teacher up into the system which is going to allow you to qualify or not, as well as be that more neutral coach. Um, so it, we often in education are trying to disentangle those two practices. And of course one of the things about um, coaching in education is that generally you're not working as an assessor um, that doesn't mean that all coaches are working in the same way, but you are generally not working as an assessor. But the type of conversation you might find yourself having as a coach can be very very reminiscent of the type of conversation that you have, will have had if you were a mentor or are also a mentor or when you were mentored. And it's quite easy for coaches to slip back into that, not, not formal assessment role, but kind of anticipated assessment role, especially when what often is generated um, as a need by the teacher who's being coached is a, can you reassure me that what I'm doing, I'm doing okay? Can you give me any clear guidance as to how to improve? And 
in order to give clear guidance, to some extent you are making a judgment about what's missing. So, so it's quite difficult in teacher education, whether it's at the initial stage or later on in continuing professional development, to pull apart coaching and mentoring in reality, because our experiences are all, have all originated in a mentoring relationship. And, and some of the similarities into coaching world would be um, linked or coaching or mentoring or coach developing linked to a qualification pathway. Mm -hmm. So someone that might be supporting someone to pass a level two qualification, um, there will be a set of competencies that someone yeah. is needing to aim towards. So um, you know, it is supportive, but there's also a direction there rather than it just being, well, let's just... Um, support you on an onward journey that mm -hmm. isn't necessarily linked to a qualification. That um, uh, subtle but important difference, or not so subtle, the difference between coaching and mentoring is that um, something that people working in the in in the supportive world in education genuinely struggle with in terms of discerning the differences. Yes, I think they do because, um, well, partly actually because. Um, in very pragmatic terms, there are very few kind of clean or pure coaching approaches being used in education. You know, if you went into the world of business, there are, I would imagine, quite a lot of, well, I know that there are a lot of practices which are called coaching where people are, go on the basis, and quite rightly, go on the basis that the answers, um, that this person needs reside within them already. My job as a coach is to create an environment in which those answers can be um, generated, explored, uh, put into action, committed to, etc., etc. So the solutions, if you like, the answers rest with this person. Um, and whilst it might be the case that um, an individual teacher can, if you like, um, generate more of the solutions for themselves through the right coaching approach, there is also, in education, very rarely enough time for that cycle to work. But also the fact that because the experiences that people have of education are so mixed in terms of they are both in the past a learner and in the current a teacher, the answers are often muddled because they have this dual perspective. And that can actually generate some confusion. Um, so I think... It's true to say that people work hard to differentiate between mentoring and coaching. It's also true to say that in some jurisdictions, um, they are seen much more as existing on a spectrum or in, in relationship to each other, with an acknowledgement that actually a good practitioner will slip between the two, but they'll do so knowingly, and they'll do so with a, a level of expertise that allows whichever end of the spectrum they're slipping into to be applied um, well, to be used well, but also um, with a stance that is um, allowing the person who you're working with to be part of the decision about whether right now we're mentoring or coaching. So it's, n it's not something which is imposed, it's something which is negotiated. Mm. So in some, yeah, in some jurisdictions, for example, I was recently in Western Quebec, they have a whole host of people who are trained as mentor coaches, and they don't distinguish the role, they are mental coaches, but they do distinguish the practice and say at different times with different people you will need to deploy different approaches in order to do the whole job well. And that was, we touched on it in the conversation just prior to this recording, the, 
the sliding scale that we would um, explore between coach-developer practice, which would be focused a bit more on coaching practice, and mentoring, which would be focused a bit more on the person, but probably a little bit more guiding, advising. Um, but there is a sliding scale along those, and I really like the way you're describing you know, the, the discursive points around, we're going to be operating at this point here, and I'm going to share that, and we're going to discuss it, but it's, it's known and it's communicated. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a, a, a few grey areas which I think become greyer when it's not a discussed point. Um, can I just go back to something you mentioned before around almost some of the tools that would happen in teacher education? So can you just talk us through what a, the purpose of and what a teaching observation would look like, um, just to see if it, if it correlates exactly to what a coach developer observation would look like? Okay, well again I think there's huge huge variation. Um, there are no standard practices. Um, so in some contexts, um, for example, a teacher will be observed teaching by their line manager or by their, their head teacher, ultimate line manager, um, who will be using the observation as part of the collection of evidence in which will feed into performance management. And that's an individual um, process isn't it that the individual professional is part of so everybody's performance is managed in some way and one of the ways that the observation is used is to give insight to the performance line manager uh, about the, the practices that are common of course nothing's all that common when you've got an occasional visitor in your classroom especially if that person's your line manager mm. everything becomes a bit un, 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 um, uncommon at that point so some teachers experience a lot of observation which feeds into formal um, practices of judgment and that would happen from early career right the way through. In other settings those sorts of practices have been put aside deliberately and part of that reason is because Ofsted, so the inspector, are now saying we don't intend to observe lessons to judge individual teachers by. So there's no reason for line managers in schools to judge individual teachers on the basis of lesson observations. There are other ways of making sense of the quality of teaching and learning. So in some schools that's been set aside. So in some schools, when you talk about lesson observation, you might be talking much more about um, peer observation, teachers observing each other, perhaps within the structure of something like lesson study, which is a really well um, established routine. Um, uh, are based around the notion that through studying lessons in collaboration with other professionals you can really start to refine the planning for those lessons, the, um, the teaching of those lessons and a better understanding of the experience of those lessons by the pupils. And there's a formal kind of overarching structure to lesson study but it includes at its heart processes of peer observation. So sometimes in schools or on teacher education courses the um, a, a substantial part of your experience of being observed as a teacher will fit into that category. In schools there are also things like uh, learning walks. So in some schools senior leadership teams uh, will schedule a learning walk and what that would mean is that over the course of maybe a day they will deliberately drop into a number of lessons but they may only see five to ten minutes and they may just provide two or three items of feedback. But they perhaps haven't had a chance to really feedback, uh, to really discuss with the teacher because they're dropping into so many in a day. And the idea of a learning walk generally is we're going to get a snapshot of teaching and learning on this occasion, which we can then write up, record, and if 
somebody needs to um, hold us to account, then we can show how we're holding everybody else to account, hopefully in a way which is at least um, sensitive to the realities, because we've just been into normal lessons. But all of these sorts of so all of these sorts of things generate lots and lots and lots of different practices. Some of which are really um, productive. Some of which are seen much more as surveillance by teachers. Some of which are seen as as genuine opportunities to create uh, new forms of dialogue and therefore new insight into teaching and learning. Some of which draw outsiders in. Some of which draw colleagues in. There are very few standard practices. In the past, it would probably be true to say that most teachers would be observed on a regular basis against a checklist. And the checklist was somehow related to what Ofsted at the time was saying they would expect to see in lessons. But as Ofsted have changed their, um, if you like, their frameworks and inspection frameworks, that is filtering down to some extent into the experiences of teachers. Mm. And just the, um, the concept of that process of lesson study? Lesson study, yeah. Um, I think that would connect into what a lot of coaches are hopefully were starting to engage is just in terms of talking to peers and colleagues just about about their practice mm -hmm. uh, and and being much more willing to share openly about this is what I'm trying to do this is how it went um, could you come and have a watch yeah. of me is that a is that an organic thing well there are well, there are examples of that which happen organically but the lessons study uh, framework is, I mean, it's, it's been around for well over 100 years, it's Japanese in its origin, it, and they have a very significant, um, it frames a lot of teacher development in Japan, and then other places have picked up on it, but it, lesson study has a very distinct pattern to it, which is that um, a, a small group of teachers, perhaps three, agree a focus, um, and that focus might be related to the needs of a specific group of children, or it might be um, related to the needs of a, um, a part of the curriculum that, you know, that they're having to think more carefully how do we teach this part of the curriculum. Um, it might be related to the desire to introduce an innovation, maybe technology innovation or whatever, but there's an agreed focus amongst a small group of teachers. And what they agree to do over a kind of schedule of however many weeks, months, is to work together um, around that focus um, in three or four stages. So the first stage is establishing the agreed focus, the second stage is sitting down together and starting to plan together. And what tends to happen is, let's say there's a group of three of them, one person offers to be the first person who is, if you like, in the spotlight. The three of them work together to help uh, the individual who's going to be doing the teaching to think a little bit more critically, a bit more creatively, a bit more productively perhaps about that lesson that they're going to teach. Um, and though that notion that actually we've all been there from the beginning, so we kind of know what your intention is, we've helped you to shape the lesson, and therefore when we come and observe you teach, we've got that insight before we even walk through the door. We're a bit more conscious of what we might see here and what might, what, what might be useful to focus our attention on. It, is there a generating further insight part of that stage too about the the collaborative planning? Is that part yeah. of doing that? Yes. So the idea being that there is a co-constructive element, so that you know it is unlikely that the lesson being taught would have been planned and taught that way if there hadn't been um, generative conversation between the three of them. Um, and so there's a, that in a way that both is generative but is also supportive because this lesson now belongs to all of them. So they've all got a stake in it, which is quite nice. 
the, what tends to happen then is the observers, um, or the teacher teaches a lesson, both observers, let's say three of them, both go in and watch. But the interesting thing that's unusual here is that the observer's attention tends to be on a group of pupils rather than on the teacher. So what they're really doing is they're looking to see what is the impact of the lesson planning and the teaching of that lesson on learning and on the way that the pupils respond, the, the, the work that they produce. So they're, they're paying attention to a group of pupils and then um, following the lesson, not only do they get back together again as a group of teachers, but the two observers also talk to the pupils quite explicitly about, can you tell us what were you learning in that lesson? Can you tell us um, what the teacher was doing that was helping you in that lesson? So they're trying to correlate or triangulate, if you like, the intent and the planning with actually what was it like to be the learner in that lesson. And then when the three teachers come together again, you've got a variety of perspectives that you can draw upon. You've got the teacher's perspective, I was teaching it, this is how I felt it when this is what I noticed in that kind of articulation of my planning. You've got the observers who were in the live lesson who were able to comment, feedback on, if you like, the, not the delivery, that sounds too industrial, but in, in the kind of the reality of the lesson, the practice of the lesson, but also they've gathered the insight from the pupils. They may have gathered other artefacts like pupils' work, and all of that becomes the source of the next conversation. And then the idea being that the next conversation is um, leading on to them um, starting to think about the next lesson, which somebody else in the triad will be teaching, which they will then all plan together, but there will be a, a, a kind of a, a link between them all. So, you know, if it was all to do with introducing a new app, a new piece of technology, for example, all of them will be focusing on the same dilemma or the same opportunity or the same question in this sequence of lessons. There are some examples of lesson study where there is, and, and the a Japanese model does typically have this, where there is, in addition to the teachers, there is also a facilitator who helps to kind of negotiate the whole process through and provides um, an ability to, uh, bring, to bring an outsider perspective to the whole thing. But what that does generally is it just creates um, another... Uh, another quality and another dimension to the conversation. The key thing is happening that is happening in these processes is that each episode of working together is driven by and then followed through with conversation. And what we know from research about lesson study is that it's very easy to keep people busy doing this sort of thing. Um, most people quite like the idea of it, most people quite like the activity because they get to work with their colleagues. It's quite hard sometimes to give it enough time but that when it really works, it works because the type of conversation that is being created has the same characteristics as a coaching conversation. So we, we can see that there are these parallels. Mm. And I, you know, listening to that and thinking about a, a group of coaches in a club or in a, you know, a, a part of a talent pathway, getting them to work in that type of triad, the coach developer role would almost come in as that facilitator. Yeah, absolutely. Just to guide some conversation, maybe, just help them negotiate the pathway, spark some yeah. little bits of curiosity where it's maybe missing, but um, getting the coaches to generate that discussion. Yeah. And when it works really well, that's the sort of thing that tends to lead to teachers just being significantly more comfortable with having observation. Um, and working more collegiately with their peers, recognising that they don't have to have all the answers themselves, that it's okay to go and ask for a bit of support and help, um, but also gaining real insight into how to learn from observing each other. Um, so 
and it's, again, it's about um, it's like about contending with this uh, this routine that teachers have often been habitualised into, which is that if somebody comes to watch me teach, it's because they're making a judgement. It's about reframing that whole experience. Um, it's about opening up those classroom doors, but it's actually about creating something which is very focused. So the reason why it, it, we tend to just call it lesson study in the UK, but it, its origin and its kind of real um, term, name is research lesson study, with the idea that the thing that is being researched are the lessons, because that's the site of practice and that's where we'll gain our knowledge and insight from, mm. by paying more attention to those lessons. And that's where... That's where coaching happens, but it doesn't just happen what you were describing there. It does, just doesn't happen in the classroom. It's in the pre-planning and in the reflection afterwards. Yeah. Um, and properly engaging someone so I could you know, see that reframing this as coaching study, actually engaging coaches in the study of their coaching yeah. practice with each other. And also it provides a legitimate way to feed in and feed off um, other evidence that already exists. So if you let's say you were your focus was on um, helping pupils develop uh, the skills for collaborative group work in lessons, which a lot of teachers are really quite anxious about. Um, if you were really paying attention to that, then it would be a good time to read more widely around the research or practice insights around collaborative group work. So again, it's about drawing down into this focused space um, some of the knowledge and insights that become available to you, and then exploring through your practice, how that might um, relate to the literature. So another, re you know, another thing you might connect to, it might be that you're, you know, as a whole school, you've got a whole school agenda for change, and actually each subgroup is, is working within that agenda, but they're articulating you know, that particular whole school agenda into the direct practice that they are involved with with their kids on a daily basis. Mm. So it's a quite a flexible model, and certainly, as I say, one of the things is, that is evident is it works really well when when we see it as a coaching model as opposed to a, just a drill of activities. Mm. And yeah, again, going back to that example of you know, a small group of coaches working in a club or in part of a pathway, getting them to focus on, it might be uh, using the, the constraints-led approach, which is one of the, the models of coaching that people are um, exploring in, in their work at the moment in terms of how they might structure practice um, that might be a real focus that actually we're just going to attend to this mm -hmm. in this next series of lessons we can generate some insight together we can practice and explore it and that's a that co-construction that collaborative approach yeah. I think is something that um, you know, I think it, it, it will happen informally in some places but actually giving it a touch more of a structure yeah. and not not overly formalising, but providing a... But there has to be some... Um, all of these things, they do rely on some of the discipline of doing it well. So knowing what it means to do this well and then really trying to work to that those criteria. So it's not about punishing yourself in order to do it well, but it is about saying we have got enough to do in all of our jobs without then investing time in stuff that's, if you like, that's quite um, flaccid, you know, that has little impact. So really... Really understanding how we do that work well, so that we are as productive as possible, because mm. um, we we just don't have enough time, you know, to just wallow around gradually getting better. You, you do actually have to be quite attentive to the detail. Um, so I think, yeah, that, those those are the sorts of things. And again, this notion of, you know, in in education, most practices, unless it's to do with, let's say, well-being coaching, and there is a real kind of 
um, surge of coaching, what is often called coaching, which is especially orientated around teacher well-being, head teacher well-being, and therefore to do with retention, uh, to do with um, you know whether or not somebody decides to make a career move or not. All of those things are kind of very much to do with the personal well-being and how that links to professional capacity and uh, ambition and, and just livelihood, because if you're not well, you're not going to survive very long. Um, if you put that to one side for a minute, because that is generally more open coaching. Most of the coaching that goes on in education is, I would say, something which requires the coach to have a degree of insight so that when appropriate, they can offer that insight, but without it being an imposition in the space. Um, and I think, you know, so therefore, the, they're not, you're not saying they are expert in everything, but they are able to understand enough about what they're seeing so that their contributions have some validity and some credibility. Yeah, getting to that point where it might almost be, you know, permission granted, so would you, know, would, would you like some advice here? Yeah. Um, you know, we, there is that balance between um, co-constructing and, and enabling someone to travel their own journey and mm -hmm. sharing some of your wisdom and experience which you may well have lots and it is of. a very fine balance <laughs> yes. to be struck not, not easy um, but I mean there are other models there's a model that's quite current at the moment um, called instructional coaching um, which originates in the United States and um, which is being the term is being adopted in the UK so quite a lot of teachers in the near future I think are going to become exposed to the idea of instructional coaching and in some versions of that, the coaching conversation is quite scripted because actually uh, the idea is that you're really trying to drive home some of the qualities of a form of instruction or the, uh, the dimensions of instruction. And what we mean by instruction is um, it's the American term for teaching and learning. So, um, uh, but, and some of, those, some of those schemes are really quite scripted. So one of the things the coach is doing is identifying when certain forms of instructional coaching might be relevant for this individual. But then if you like following a, almost a game plan because we you know we, we think these sorts of questions, these sorts of um, insights are helpful. There are other models of instructional coaching which are much more um, much less scripted. I think the jury's still out on which of those is going to have the most um, is likely to have the greatest impact in our context because the English education system is different to the American education system, cultures, the practices, expectations are all different. And when you say impact, mm -hmm. what do you mean by impact? Well that's another big question isn't it? So we do tend to get driven in, in English education at the moment with a very singular set of metrics which is to do with people attainment and achievement, uh, people progress, so a lot of, res a lot of the um, funded research projects, a lot of the um, career development projects are kind of orientated towards this idea of closing the gap in attainment, um, in, in increasing the rate of people progress, um, and, and you know if you're talking about closing the gap and increasing the rate of people progress, then what you're really saying is in relation to this measure that somebody has perhaps relatively arbitrarily chosen to demonstrate people progress. Um, so there is always that impact on, well, you know, if we've decided that a GCSE grade is the thing that matters, does the work that we're doing with you in coaching or mentoring or lesson study, does that actually impact on people's GCSE grades? Because if it doesn't, we could argue that we're wasting our time. Um, the trouble with that kind of linear thinking is that inevitably, in order to 
you know, for a child to get a GCSE grade, we are talking about a child age 16 who has had a teaching experience in school probably since age four. And although that GCSE grade might seem terribly closely related to the two years teaching of one teacher in one subject, it's unlikely to be wholly related to the quality of teaching. There is probably a significant influence from the quality of teaching, but all of the other things that will influence how well a child achieves on a particular day in an exam hall are going to come into play. And anything which we do which tries to drill down and suggest that there is a, a single golden thread between being coached, you know, here, being coached, and that child or those, that cohort of children doing suddenly so much better in their GCSEs is, a, is, in my mind, relatively flawed because of all the other stuff that's happening. On the other hand, if there was no indication that the quality of teaching impacted on the quality of learning outcome and attainment, then why would we ever worry about the quality of teaching? Mm. There is a strong indication that it's a significant contributor if amongst this kind of complex web of contributors. So actually really honing in on what are the skills that teachers can, uh, can acquire and can practice and become more confident in, how can you broaden their repertoire in a way which is really um, giving advantage to the pupils in the class, anything which can do those things and, and coaching can do those things is advantageous. But as well as that, we are looking at um, the extent to which a teacher develops over a career. And okay, some of those careers are quite short, but um, if they are developing over a career, then it isn't just about the here and now. What a really good coaching program will do is help somebody make sense of learning, professional learning from the past and how that can be still built on so that it's not just shoved away in a cupboard. Uh, you know, mentally kind of put somewhere else, that actually there's a notion of a coach helping to build a continuum of professional development. And there is also this question of whether we're talking about developing practice, which is tangible and you can see it happening, or whether what you're doing is you're helping professional learning, which is sometimes a bit more hidden and a bit more to do with um, a more... Um, tacit understanding of things or linking practice to values or recognising the complexity in practice which sometimes can actually create more tension in practice as you resolve some of the conundrums and dilemmas that have emerged through your learning rather than just be a switch of suddenly everything's so much better. And I think really good coaching is works at that place of tension. Mentoring may not. Mentoring in, in education feels a bit more linear. Because, like you said, in your case, we've got a set of standards that our teachers are expected to demonstrate in order to be competent and qualified to teach or to maintain their professional status. Mentoring often drives towards a set of standards that are determined by somebody else. Coaching is often much more of that. Okay, we're looking at the individual, we're looking at them in, as, a, as, a, as a continuing professional. We're looking at them in constant formation. We're looking at them and not them, it's personal to them today, and we're looking at everything that surrounds the decisions that they make in the classroom and everything that results from how those are played out, including do they get up the next morning and want to go to work. Indeed, <laughs> and managing that uncertainty, so um, getting a coach developer to be supportive but challenge in the right way, mm -hmm. um, I think is really important. It's a great point that you make, and also just drawing the connection back into coaching world, you know, the impact of a coach developer supporting a coach to have an impact on players which might in a certain situation be do they travel through a talent pathway do they win a medal at the end of it we're always trying to draw the connection between the supportive role of a coach mm -hmm. in enabling that to happen yeah mm -hmm. in 
the way that you articulated all of the other factors, environmental factors, um, psychosocial factors, that's all going on as well. It's not just the coach, but the coach does play an important and influential role in the same way that the coach developer supports the coach. Mm. But whilst you get one step removed, then how much is that impact? And we would be working through the impact and value of each level or layer of that pathway, the, the coach impact on players and environment, mm -hmm. and then the coach developer's impact on the coach, yeah. probably struggling in the same way yeah. of you in, in articulating that in a really clear way because it is so complex. Um, the most powerful impact, I think, though, for teachers is when they have a very successful experience of working with a coach, um, and this sounds kind of cheesy, really, um, they are they are effectively more able to self-coach. So they're more nuanced in their understanding of what they're trying to do. They're more um, reflective. I mean, that's such a bandied around word, isn't it, reflective? But they are genuinely more able to be curious about um, the quality of their own practice and, and the different things that influence it. And actually, they rehearse internally the sorts of conversations that they have with the coach at, at points when it might make a difference, so when they're sitting down and planning a lesson or when, it, when they're having a conversation with a child about behaviour or whatever those things are, actually playing in their head as some of the previous conversations and actions that a coach will have helped them think through. Um, and therefore, they essentially becoming more self-determining. And, and you know, the one characteristic you would hope to, you could apply to all professions is that there is a level of self-determination um, that is that is perhaps that builds over time and that gives people that professional confidence because unless you can actually generate that, you are going to run out of people who could be coaches. Mm. You know, and so. in most of these, you know, the, the relationship between teacher and coach or coach and coach developer, there's normally a timeline to that yeah. and you don't want to build reliance and you want to mm. build some self-regulation and mm -hmm. autonomy there, which you know, we would be you know, always looking at, there's a scaffold there and we're wanting to remove that at some point. Um, I'm aware we've touched on lots and lots of different things, and I'm really keen just for you to share a little bit about what Collective Ed is. If okay. if our um, listeners haven't come across that or haven't heard about it, I think it's a fantastic resource. I'd just like you to share what okay. is it? Well, so Collective Ed is the Centre for Coaching and Mentoring and Professional Learning, or the other way around. Um, and it is a research and practice centre located here at Leeds Beckett. And the idea of Collective Ed is it will become... It will provide opportunities for high-quality professional conversations about professional learning. Now, whether those opportunities emerge um, from um, research projects, which give people greater insight um, into practices um, and the impact or the quality of those practices, and therefore help them to be reflective about their own practices and go into conversation with each other in relation to that research, that might be the way through. It might be because people come to collective ed events, which are very... Um, much ones in which we bring together practitioners, policy makers, if we can get them, researchers with a shared interest and start to create reasons for conversation around coaching or mentoring or professional learning um, or whether it's um, a conversation that emerges through um, uh, the decision to uh, for example write a working paper for the working paper series. It's a pretty eclectic set of things that we're doing at the moment but what we're really just trying to do is become a, a part of the landscape which is um, productive in terms of how teachers work with each other and with others from outside the profession to help them 
and school leaders in all sectors, to be fair, all sectors of education, to become more confident and competent professionals. So it's quite, yeah, it's information. We're always in conversation with each other, but we are there. And the, the shared research papers there so quarterly? We have, no, gosh, if there, was a, if there was a schedule, that would be very organised. <laughs> no, so we have, um, we publish working papers, working papers around the themes that are relevant to the, the centre that are written by... Um, practitioners, research students, academics, uh, policy makers, occasionally thinkers, um, who, uh, and we publish those on the Leeds Beckett website, um, and they are essentially collated and edited when enough papers have been submitted for there to be something worth collating, editing, and publishing. Um, but they're there, and they are seemingly well used. Uh, people seem to appreciate the fact that they can dip in and out of them, and often. Unlike, say, um, you know, a single uh, peer-reviewed paper or a, a single blog, it's the thing that's next to the paper that drew you in which becomes interesting because you suddenly realise there's another 10 or 12 papers there and actually it will only take five minutes to read the next one and it starts to build up um, this more holistic understanding of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's where I first uh, engage with, with uh, articles and obviously LinkedIn with yourself, just drawing the connections between teaching and academic support and coaching and what, what we do in sport and coaching world and there are definitely some crossovers and connections. So, you know, there was there was one the rationale for asking that question was just to give our listeners an insight into this is another set of free, accessible resource written in a really um, again easily accessible way. You know, they're not 30-page long articles. No, no, they're they? very deliberately, usually no more than two and a half thousand words. Mm. So that they can be read in ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I would you know, say, highly recommend uh, flipping through the, exactly the way you, I, I've sometimes dipped in, read something, and then found that the, the following article is actually the one that's more interesting than mm. the one I maybe looked at firstly. I um, really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much, You're Rachel. You're welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.